0: Thank you, Taylor. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19 on into 20. And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week with Paul in ephesus right in the middle of his third and final missionary journey ephesus was quite a place we called it a denomics stronghold of the enemy and it certainly was that the way they worship false gods and idols and it was a hard place to build a church but in it god was using paul and others to raise up this christian community and great things were happening the bible says even extraordinary miracles were taking place do you remember what those were handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched paul were being taken to people and they were being healed when they touched these items there were some extraordinary things happening in ephesus paul would spend three years there and he was able to teach openly about the word of god Jesus' name was held in high honor and what happened when the name of jesus was held in high honor many people's lives were changing they were experiencing life change how did that life change get expressed with some of them some of them brought their sorcery scrolls. And what did they do with them? They burned them publicly. Do you remember? As their profession of faith and allegiance to God and getting rid of the things that, that kept them from God. A lot of amazing things were happening. But there were some that took notice. And they did not like Paul. They did not like this new church thing that was happening. They didn't like the name of Jesus. One of those guys was the name of, had the name of Demetrius. Now, we read about Demetrius in the latter part of Acts 19, and if you've read ahead, then you already know what, what he's all about. But around verse 25, we're introduced to him, and, and he starts to complain that, that Paul is bad for business. You see, Demetrius was a silversmith, and his job was to make these small silver shrines in dedication to Artemis, the false god they all worshipped, and less and less people were buying his craft. And, and he just thought that, man, the more that Christianity spreads, I'm not going to make as much money. And so he pulled all of his, his guys that he knew that, that was in this business, and he began to tell them, hey, we're going to go out of business. And the, Don't you know that life change is often bad for business? Because the things that we used to think were important, the things that we used to spend our money on, the things that, that had this just, this is all that I'm about, all of a sudden when we're following Jesus and holding him high honor, those things just aren't as important anymore. Can you imagine somebody that used to worship at the temple all the time that becomes a Christian? What do they not need anymore? Silver shrines to Artemis. So he convinces all of these other craftsmen that we're going to go out of business, and they actually were able to stir up, catch this, several thousand people in Ephesus against Paul and against the Christians. And more and more people joined this, and they actually, in kind of a mob mentality, they went and seized two of Paul's really good friends. And they drag them to the theater in Ephesus. I'm going to show you a picture of this theater. It's been completely excavated. But, but this right here, if you want to know, I want to see real things associated with real things in the Bible and real places. Here's one of them. This amphitheater is Acts 19. Because this mob, they grab Paul's friends and they drug them right to that very stage. And this, the Bible says, this entire theater, it seats 25,000. They filled it up. They said a lot of the people that came to the theater that day, they, they didn't even know why they were there. They were just following the crowd. But for hours, the the, the crowd chanted and cheered, and, and it was like this riot. Paul begged his friends to let him go. Paul, in the back, in the latter part of 19, he wants to walk right into this building here that you can go stand in the exact same place. He wanted to go and address all these thousands of people and try to explain about Jesus. And his friends are like, don't go in there, Paul. You're not going to come out alive. That's not a good place for you. And so he doesn't. Now, thankfully, towards the end of Acts chapter 9, cooler heads prevailed. There was a discussion among the people leading this mob that, you know what, if we keep this up, the Roman government's going to come in and handle this, and we don't want that. And so the crowd dispersed. And Acts chapter, nine, Acts chapter 19 ends with this mob, this riot calming down. The end of Acts chapter 19 also signals the end of Paul's time in the city of Ephesus. After this riot, Paul decides it's time to move on to the next town and continue his journey. So as we transition from Acts chapter 19 into Acts chapter 20, you're going to notice that Acts chapter 20 is a lot different than Acts chapter 19. And what I mean by that is, when you read Acts chapter 20, you don't read about riots and angry mobs. There's no, you know... uh, massive confrontations in Acts chapter 20. There's no denomic encounters that we read about in Acts chapter 20. Paul doesn't plant any more churches in Acts chapter 20. Really, Acts chapter 20 kind of stands unique. It's a unique chapter in the Bible. And if you've read it, then, then you know that it kind of reads like a travel itinerary, doesn't it? It's a detailed record of the places Paul and his companions went while they were trying to hurry back to Jerusalem. It describes in detail the routes that Paul takes, the cities he stops at, the people he meets meets along the way, and how much time he spends at each place. He spends most of Acts chapter 20 on a ship, going from port to port to port to port. And a lot of people might look at Acts chapter 20 and say, yeah, this isn't that interesting. But I'm going to tell you, there is a lot of significant information in Acts chapter 20. But there are those who would say, you know, Acts chapter 20 is not that important. Let's just move on to Acts chapter 21. Because in Acts chapter 1, Paul makes it back to Jerusalem, and people are out to get him again. There's a mob, there's an arrest, there's a thrown in prison. That's where it gets good again. But Acts chapter 20 is this travel itinerary chapter of the Bible. But let me tell you why I love Acts chapter 20 and why I want to spend some significant time there today. All throughout the book of Acts, we learn about how Paul is a great evangelist. He is an incredible church planter. He is a incredible defender of the faith. He is a miracle worker. These are all things and uh, th- things that Paul has done that we've grown accustomed to. But what Acts chapter 20 does is it shows us that Paul is also a great pastor. We get to see him in a slightly different light than we do in other places in in the Bible. There's There's a pastoral side of Paul that really comes out. There's this huge heart that Paul has for people, especially those who are closest to him. And we see that very clearly in Acts chapter 20. We get to see how Paul interacted with those he was closest with. So, if you follow the timeline, it's easy to do with a map, one of the maps in the back of your Bible. At the end of Acts chapter 9, Paul leaves Ephesus, and he continues to travel, and he goes all the way to Athens. And he spends three months in Athens, and and during this time, from Ephesus to Athens, he starts to get this sense that the Holy Spirit is telling him, you need to go to Jerusalem. It becomes a very clear calling. Paul, it's time for you to pack up. I need you to go to Jerusalem. And then the Lord also said to him, I'm going to also send you on to Rome. So Paul becomes very driven. He becomes very much in a big hurry after this. So he, in Athens, he turns around. And this is why he spends a lot of that time on a ship. Because wouldn't you rather go by boat than have to walk by land? So he gets on a boat and it's quicker to go from port to port to port, sail through the Mediterranean. He's he's in a hurry and he's trying to get back to Jerusalem. So if you're looking on a map, he's traveling back in the direction that he came and his ship is going to sail close by Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is right on the water. They have a harbor there. The temptation is that Paul would stop in Ephesus and he would spend more time there because let's face it, if you spent three years of your life somewhere building close relationships and all of these friends and you care deeply about the church there and in this day and age when you're not around these places a lot, if you're sailing by closely, aren't you gonna wanna stop and see your friends? Paul knows that if he does that, he's gonna be late and he needs to get to Jerusalem. So they actually stop at a port that's about 30 miles away From Ephesus, and when they port there, he sends some people to Ephesus to get the elders of the church to travel to the port that he is at so that he can visit with them. It kind of has this feeling. If you've ever had a friend call you up one night and say, Hey, I'm actually going to be driving through Fayetteville tomorrow, and I was wondering if you would drive down to Fayetteville and let's meet somewhere on the highway and have lunch together. It kind of has that feel to it. This stop, it's not going to be a long stop, it's a quick stop. He knows if he goes to Ephesus, it's going to be weeks and weeks, maybe months. He's not going to want to leave. And so the elders come to him. Except Paul isn't merely interested in a social gathering with these elders. He wants to say goodbye. What's going to come out very clearly in Acts chapter 20 is Paul knows that this is the last time he is ever going to speak with these men. It's the last time that he's ever going to be in their presence. And this has been such a special group to Paul for three years, and it shows us this very pastoral side. So in in Acts chapter 20, um, we read about Paul's farewell to the elders. If you're reading from an NIV version of the Bible, and other Bibles do this too, but they'll put uh, section titles in the scripture, you might have a section title in Acts chapter 20 that says something to the effect of Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders or Paul says goodbye or something like that. This is the part of Acts chapter 20 that we're going to spend on. We're not going to read the whole thing, but there's really three parts to his conversation. Paul is going to go back into the past and talk about some stuff. And then he's going to talk about their present situation. And then Paul is going to talk about their future. So if you've got your Bibles, if you look at verse 17, we're going to start right there. Acts 20, verse 17, it says this, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. That's about 25, 30 miles away. So when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think we get the whole conversation here. I'm sure there was plenty of small talk and how you doing and how Sally and how's Jill and, and there's all of that. But what Luke records for us is the heart of the conversation. It's the meat of the content of what they were talking about. And what Paul says to the elders of the church, he says, Since I've come to know you, since the day I got to Ephesus, I have been motivated by this. It says in verse 19, I serve the Lord. Everything that Paul ever did in Ephesus was motivated by what it says right there. I serve the Lord. Now, we know that Paul was not interested in making all kinds of money, and he'll remind them of that in verse 33. And we also know that Paul was not interested in having a life where his feet were in the air and he could take it easy, and he'll remind them of that in verse 35. But since Paul is talking to the leaders of the church, he's kind of doubling down to make sure they understand that his motive for ministry was spiritual and not selfish. He knows that there's gonna be hard days in front of these elders. And he's almost it's almost like this feeling of a gut check. He's like, guys, I'm in it for all the right reasons. Are you? You know that since I came, I was motivated by serving the Lord. Are you? That, that's kind of how this, this feels because guys, if we're not ser- motivated by serving the Lord, what we do will ultimately fail. And so Paul is just really bringing to their focus, why do you do what you do? Here's why I do it, but why do you do it? And you know, I think that's a great reminder for us as the church today to just ask that question. What is your true motivation for serving the Lord? Why do we serve the Lord. Have you thought about it in a while? Why do I serve God? What motivates me to do it? Because if your motivation is based on what Paul's is, I serve the Lord, then that is a spiritual motive. And I truly believe that God blesses humble spiritual motives, things we do for the name of the Lord. But if our motive in serving the Lord is more selfish, in other words, the things that we do for God is because we might get some praise or because it might, it might benefit us this way or I want to be a part of this church because I might network better and my business might grow and I do the things so people think highly of me. If our motivation of why we serve the Lord is built upon something that is in and of itself selfish, I don't believe that the Lord blesses that. Ultimately, that will come crashing down around you i I got a real lesson one time about doing things with proper motivation and uh i'm going to tell you this story about something that happened to me in the sixth grade and those of you who are from my generation you're going to really relate to this when i was around sixth grade there was a new invention that hit the market that was the craze of the world it was this little gray box it had a lid that flipped open and it said nintendo across the front of it how many of you had one of those Absolutely, and, and the kids today will no, never understand the stress of having a game not work, and you, what do you got? You got to pull it out of the game, blow in the cartridge, and put it back. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Been there, done that. Thank you. All of you in your early 40s, you're with me. Okay, we didn't have to download anything. This is such a world that's so far away from Wi-Fi, nothing, all right? I did not have a Nintendo when they first came out. That's not anything that my parents bought for me. But there was this kid at school named Nathan. Nathan was not a friend. In fact, the more I think about it, Nathan didn't have a lot of friends. But he had a Nintendo. And I kind of invited myself over to Nathan's house one day. Not because I wanted to be his friend. I wanted to play his Nintendo. And Nathan had absolutely no problem sharing his Nintendo with me. I did it again the next day. And then I did it again. I wasn't thinking about how Nathan was feeling about any of that stuff. I, I didn't think about how maybe he thought I wanted to be his friend. No, I, I wanted to play his Nintendo. And then one day, my friend Steve, who ironically is still one of my very good friends to this day, Steve said to me, Why are you hanging out with Nathan? You don't even really like him. And I didn't even think about it. I didn't even bat an eye. I said, Yeah, I know. But he has a Nintendo. And my friend Steve said to me, "That is not very nice. I never thought about it. No it. It wasn't very nice. And you don't know how many times, I would say hundreds, if not thousands of times... God has put that memory back inside of my mind and brought it to my attention when I'm facing a difficult choice that basically bottoms out as, what is your motivation? And it's interesting, I don't know, maybe you've got some stories like that that God just keeps really fresh on your mind. And I'm faced with situations like, yeah, I've been there one time, I mistreated a kid because I wanted to play as much, I'm not going to do that again. Paul's motivation for why he was doing everything that he was doing can be boiled down to this one phrase I serve the Lord and so the question we should wrestle with a little bit today is what's your motivation why do you serve the Lord is it a spiritual matter or is it a selfish matter one God blesses one he doesn't bless why do we serve the Lord the next thing Paul is going to talk about is his present circumstance. If you look at verse 22, he shifts a little bit. It says this, And now, which is a clear indication in Scripture that I'm not talking about what was, I am now talking about what is. So he says, "What And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing. Pay very close attention to these next couple of verses. I consider my life worth nothing to me. Only, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever See me again. Do you hear this acknowledgement? This is it. We're, none of you are going to see me again. I can't even imagine how difficult that conversation would be. Maybe some of you have had that conversation with loved ones and friends before. We're never going to see each other again. This is Paul's. This is it. Therefore, I declare to you today, verse 26, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul fills them in on some things that the Lord has been communicating to him. And he says, the Holy Spirit, by the way, I am compelled to go to Jerusalem. And he also acknowledges, I don't know what awaits for me there, but everywhere I go, every port that I stop on this ship, the Lord warns me that prison and hardships are in my future. So you have this situation going on inside of Paul currently when he's talking to them that the Lord told me to go to Jerusalem and then I'm going to have to go to Rome. And at the same time, the Lord is telling me, This path that you're on is going to lead to hardships and prison. It's not going to be easy. That's the reality that Paul is acknowledging in his present. And I have a question for you. This is a completely hypothetical question, but it's actually quite real at the same time. If you knew for a fact that what you are doing for God today was 100% going to make your life harder, would you keep doing it? Now just think about that for a minute. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that what you are doing for God, the way you are serving the Lord and living your life, was 100% certain that it was going to make your life harder, would you keep doing it? The reason I ask that question is because that's what Paul did No, and he still was continuing to press forward on what the Lord had him to do. This was his acknowledgement about his current situation. I am serving the Lord, and I know that the trajectory I'm on is going to be more difficult. Personally, I want you to know I've been fairly open with you all about this. Personally, this is how I feel about our present right here at New Life. Christ-centered, Bible-preaching churches like New Life are on a path of hardship. Do you understand this? We are on a path of hardship. and What I mean by that is we, just like all the other churches in America, we have a choice to make. We can continue to stand on the truth of God's Word. And I mean not just stand, but I mean be anchored to the Holy Word of God. We can continue to be unapologetic in our faith in Jesus Christ. We can, to the best of our abilities, continue to be unwavering in our devotion to Him, living each and every day to the best of our abilities to walk humbly with our God under the umbrella of God's forgiveness and grace, while at the same time extending a hand for Jesus to anybody who wants to hear the good news so that we might win some. We can continue to do that or we can get on a path that is not hard. We as a church can get on a path that doesn't get harder and harder but rather it gets easier and easier. That path makes the word of God relative. Certainly not authoritative. It's a path that strips the authority out of God's word. It's it's a path that says, hey, you just believe Whatever you want to believe, because you know what? God's just a God of love, and God loves you no matter what you do. He's not really concerned about how you live. Just love Him, love other people. Love who you want to love. Be who you want to be with. Marry who you want to marry. You live your life in a way that makes you happy, and we'll figure out how that harmonizes with God's Word. And if it doesn't harmonize with God's Word, well, we'll just simply take those parts, and and we won't make them apply to you. Worship becomes more about how it fills us up and how it makes us feel good instead of lifting the name of Jesus up and glorifying His name. If you knew for a fact that what you are doing for God today is 100% for certain going to make your life harder in the future, would you? Still do it. And I believe that's the path that we are on as a church family. I predict churches like New Life will have a tougher go in the future because standing upon God's Word is going to be met with more and more resistance in every place. There will be places that don't resist that now that will resist it a few years from now. Standing upon God's Word will really put us out there. And I predict it will be harder than it is today. But at the same time, and I think you would agree, and I would say agree with me and say amen if you do, God is always faithful. Always faithful. What did Jesus say to His disciples? The last thing He chose to say just before He ascended into heaven, He said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age the same is true today the lord has been with his church always he's never left us through hard times easy times god is with us and he will endure us how does somebody press on knowing that the days are going to be challenging how do you continue on of course paul says my motivation is this i serve the lord But how did he even carry on? Because Paul, wow, hardships don't even begin to describe what he went through. He even spends a whole chapter of the Bible describing just how his own body bears the scars of his faith in Jesus Christ, of all the torture he went through. How do you press on today? How do you do that? I think we press on the same way that Paul did. He understood who he was. As I read Scripture, I, I think Paul had a very clear understanding. He knew what he was motivated by. I serve the Lord. He knew where he stood in God's kingdom. It's clear from Scripture that there is a picture that gets painted of Paul with this understanding. And in fact, if you look at verse 24, 25, and 26, I believe that there are six things in those three verses that really do paint a picture that, of Paul's understanding of who he was in God's kingdom. I see as I read those three verses, I see that Paul saw himself as an accountant. I don't mean one of those guys with a pencil over his ear, punching a calculator. I don't mean that. But if you look at verse 24, he says what? I consider my life worth nothing to me. What that says to me is that Paul has done the math of his life. Paul has considered his assets, his liabilities, and he has made this decision. I'm going to put Jesus in front of everything else. I think Paul calculated. That's why I said he's kind of an accountant. He calculated. He did the math. I know who I am. I know what I'm worth in God's economy. And I consider my life worth nothing. You start to see this picture emerge of somebody who sees himself that way. I think in these few verses, we see Paul as a runner. What else did he say in verse 24? He said that my only aim is to finish the race. Now Paul talks like this in multiple places in scripture, but I think he sees himself as a runner. He realized that this life that he had was a gift from God. God had a special plan from him that he had to fulfill this ministry. He had a very great goal motivated by serving the Lord. And he knew that if he came up short before he reached the finish line, it would be failure. So he says, listen, my only aim is to finish the race. So as Paul stands there in God's kingdom, he goes, I'm a runner. i got to finish this thing. That's who I am. Paul saw himself as a steward. His ministry, and we see this in verse 24, is what? Something that he, here's the words, received from the Lord. He was a steward. What is a Steward. A steward is somebody who doesn't really own a lot for himself or nothing at all, but he possesses the things that have been given to him that he is supposed to manage and take care of and use. God had given Paul a task to do, and Paul understood that this task came to him from God. He was a steward of it to be used for God's glory. All of us have something that God has given us to steward bible speaks he's given all believers a spiritual gift and that's something that we steward and leverage for god's glory and to build his church paul understood that he stands in god's kingdom and he understands i've counted the cost of my life it's going to be for jesus he's given me a great task i'm going to be a steward of it and i'm going to finish the race he's going to be a runner paul also saw himself as a witness his job was to again verse 24 to do what to testify to god's grace You know, Paul saying this reminds us, really, that when it comes to the message of the good news, it's a serious matter. In fact, life and death do hang in the balance of the good news. You don't need to turn there, and it won't be on the screen, but later, Paul will write a letter to the Christians in Corinth, and he will talk about this life and death scenario connected to the good news of Jesus Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15. Listen to how Paul describes Christians and this message of the good news. He says, "For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ." Now, now think about it. What is he saying? We as followers of Jesus, we put off this sweet aroma of Jesus. This is the pleasing aroma do you understand? It's almost like we walk around and, and people just get in our presence and they understand there's something special. There's, you're Jesus people. We are a sweet aroma. And he goes on to say, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are Perishing. So the church, Christians, we are interacting with both saved and lost people all the time. That does not change how God sees us in the aroma that we put off. Just in the context, understanding how Paul is trying to describe this. We're the aroma of Christ. And then he says this in verse 16. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Paul saw himself as a witness and he knew that life and death hang in the balance. He stood in God's kingdom and he understood that. I'm a witness. We are witnesses as well. We have a story to share about how God has impacted our lives. Paul also saw himself as a herald. If you look at verse 25, he's referring to his preaching about the kingdom of God. You know, this idea of preaching, it it, it is to declare a message as a herald of the king. That's what preaching is. Where a witness tells what happened to him, a herald comes with a direct message from the king. And Paul saw himself as the steward of this message that he has to share with everything. He saw himself as someone commissioned by the kings, commissioned by God, with a message message to share, and he couldn't change that message. And that's why he was so steadfast on it not changing. It's going to be this. Because he was a herald. So he stood in God's kingdom. He sees himself as this. Finally, I think Paul saw himself as a watchman. In, in the Bible, there's this word called watchman. It pops up several times in the Old Testament. A watchman is somebody who simply watches the city walls. A watchman had to be somebody who stayed awake, who was very alert. A watchman could not be somebody that was fearful of much of anything because the safety of the entire community rested on his or her shoulders. So what a watchman did is they stood on the walls and they watched the hills, and if they saw approaching danger, if they saw an army approaching them, he would sound the alarm, he would raise the flag, he would light the fire, he would alert everybody in the city, take up your arms, danger is coming. Paul saw himself as one of these people. And we know that because in verse 26, Paul declared this. Did you catch it when we read it? He said, I am innocent of the blood of any of you. If you're familiar with Paul's writing, he says things like this to a lot of churches. Your blood's not on my hands. I'm innocent of you. And he says things like this because he sees himself in God's kingdom as a great watchman. He's like, because Paul, what has he done? His entire ministry. He has sounded the alarm about approaching danger. He has told people, you need to repent of your sins and turn your life to God. Paul has raised these flags, lit the fire. He has sounded the alarm. And so now here he is with these elders and he says this. I am innocent of your blood. I have already told you about the coming danger, about the end of time, and about what will happen if you, don't, if you don't respond. That's on you, not on me. So he sees himself as a, a watchman. So, if you kind of take these three verses 24, 25, and 26, they do paint a picture of how Paul saw himself in God's kingdom. I'm an accountant. I've taken an inventory of my life. My, my aim is for Jesus. My life is worth nothing except to serve Jesus. I'm going to run her. I'm going to finish what God told me to do. I am a, 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 a witness. Of all that God has done, I'm going to be a steward of this great message. I'm going to be a herald. I'm going to preach the message of God. And I'm going to be a watchman. I'm going to sound the alarm. That's how Paul saw himself in God's kingdom. And my question for you is, how do you see yourself in God's kingdom? If our motivation is, I serve the Lord, that's a very spiritual motivation. Do you also see yourself as what? In God's kingdom. Maybe there's aspects of what how Paul describes himself. He's like, I feel like I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a watchman. I feel like I'm trying to raise the alarm for all. Maybe that's where God has you for His kingdom. Maybe you're a runner. We're all runners to some degree. But maybe it's like, I feel so strongly that God wants me to see this thing through. I cannot come up short. I got to finish the race. How do you see yourself in God's kingdom? Finally, Paul's going to turn his attention to the future if you look down at verse 29 he's with these elders and he says to them i know that after i leave paul's about to get back on the boat and leave and he says i know after i leave savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from your own number men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them so be on your guard remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is that watchman mentality. I warned you. I warned you. So Paul is warning them again. The one final time, there is danger all around them. He, he calls this danger savage wolves. And how we are to understand that is that of a shepherd who has put his sheep in a pen for the night. And Paul draws this kind of mental picture. If a wolf gets in the pen, it will not spare the sheep. He says to these Ephesian elders, that's what's the danger. There are savage wolves all around and they want to destroy the flock. Now, there is some parallels here. I hope you picked up through Acts. There are parallels of the church is referred to a flock, and the enemy is referred to wolves and and danger. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. You might recall when Jesus said to his disciples, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are what? Ferocious wolves. Paul never heard Jesus say that, but all of Jesus' disciples heard him say that, and no doubt, those disciples taught that same message, and Paul got it. He's really saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. So there's dangers all around. Now, Paul, because we know from the, all of his writings in the New Testament, these savage wolves that he's referring to, they're false teachers. They are fake Christians who try to infiltrate the ranks of the, infiltrate the, ranks of the church to destroy the church or exploit it for personal gain. And... He's saying, be very careful. You remember what Ephesus was like, right? There's a lot of direct language toward Ephesus. This is some of it. And then he also says this, though. Be on your guard because what will also happen in verse 30 is that some from in the church will rise up and they're going to try to draw brothers and sisters away from the church. So be on guard for both. Those are from the outside, those are from the inside. And I think about that's one of the primary roles of an elder is to guard the flock from savage wolves. Here at our church, our elders, we have six of them. There's are six very godly men who serve a number of functions throughout the church. But one of their roles, one of their primary roles is to guard the flock to watch over the church's doctrine, to ask those hard questions. Are we still Christ-centered? Are we still Bible-based? And are we still heading down the path that God has for us? Are we stewarding ourselves the right way? Are we heralding God's message? Are we this? Are we still running the race? This is what our elders do. You know, Paul's understudy was a guy named Timothy. Timothy would soon become the leader of the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes him a letter And in that letter, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, watch what you believe and watch how you live very closely because both are very easy to get off track. Well, at the very end, Paul has to say goodbye If you look at verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Can you imagine the scene? People who aren't really close don't do these kinds of things. Embrace, weep, kiss. Verse 38 says, what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And friends, they never did. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Paul got on a boat and sailed away, and they never saw him again. And friends, I love Acts chapter 20. I think there's two questions that hover over our congregation this morning. The first question is this. What motivates you to serve the Lord? Is it spiritual or is it selfish? Why do you do what you do? Friends, I'll tell you, I believe that if it's spiritually motivated and we are all on the same page of serving the Lord and we're motivated by the right reasons, then there is nothing, there is not a hardship in our church family that we could never endure. I mean, we're going to figure it out because when you've got godly people coming together with the right motivation, driven to serve the Lord, what is there that we can't work out? Secondly, I believe there's another question that hovers over our church family. How do you see yourself in God's kingdom? We just spent a long time talking about how God saw himself, but the question now is for you. How do you see yourself? And maybe the answer is, I don't have a clue how I see myself in God's kingdom. And if that's your response today, then I'm going to invite you to get down on your knees and to ask God, God, you know my heart. I want to serve you with my whole life. I want to do that to the best of my ability, but I don't know what role you have for me. I don't know exactly what you want me to do. I I want to run the race. I want to be a good steward. I, I don't know what you want me to do. And I think a prayer prayed in humility like that where you say, God, please show me where you want me to be and how I can best serve you in your kingdom. I do believe God in his own way will show you very clearly and point you down that path because God really loves a humble heart. And he blesses things that have spiritual motivations. Why do you serve the Lord? Where do you see yourself in God's kingdom? If you've never really thought about it, I invite you, to do so now. Can I pray for you? Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for Acts 20. I thank you, Lord, for this pastoral side of Paul that we get to see. And Lord, I just pray now that you help us as a church to really, to really, Lord, take a step forward in motivation to serve you with our whole heart. Lord, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us understand your plan for us, your desire for us. Help us to see the picture, God, that you already see for our lives in your kingdom. Lord, I I pray that as we move forward as a church family, that, Lord, you will absolutely squash the devil like a bug on the pavement so that, Lord, we can press on unabated towards what you have us to do. Lord, our prayer is that you would draw more and more people whose heart is open to the good news of Jesus to us. Lord, through individual conversations or through worship or whichever way, Lord, that you would draw people to those of us who are so hungry to tell others of the good news. Lord, we believe that you have a real heart for our community. And Lord, we believe that your Holy Spirit desires not to lose a one of them lord i pray you use us in whatever way you see fit in your kingdom it's in your name we pray amen